This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. Okay, I guess we're sound coming through okay. Okay, so I guess we're on the air for those of you who made it here and those who will be watching it later. Okay, so what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about the material in Chapter 12, which is on local search. And the basic idea of local search is that we're going to start with some initial solution to our problem, say S0. And let me also comment that it's also possible that we'll allow starting at things that are not actually full solutions. Though it's, to begin with, consider ones where it's really a solution. And then we progressively move to close states. So say to state S1, which is a solution that's similar to S0, but somewhat different, and then to S2. And we keep going until either we're out of time, or the solution we find is maybe good enough. And this could be good enough in an absolute sense that it meets some desirable bound. Um, for example, you have a certain budget to spend on a solution, and you found one that meets your budget. Okay. Uh, in other cases, you can have, as we talked about last time, lower bounds on the optimal. So you might actually be able to tell that it's close to the best solution. Um, and also sometimes if you determine that there's been little recent improvement. Okay. So if you've been running and for a while you were finding better solutions and then you eventually get to a point where you're sort of not really making much progress. And let me also just comment that we can often describe this graphically in the following way, where if we let this sort of be t 
time as our process is running. And this is the cost of our solution. So what happens is we start out that's with some solution. So this is for S0. And then maybe we're moving to ones that are better. Okay. But sometimes then we get to a point where we're sort of stuck. We can't improve this solution without making some major change. So typically, the most flexible algorithms let you move briefly to more expensive solutions and then let you continue on an improving path, maybe until you get something that's better. Okay. Um, this has an analog with function minimization, okay, where if you think of a function f, it might have some profile that looks like this, where these regions are what are known as local minimums. Okay, that is, they're smaller than anything around them. Okay, and there's a tendency for local search to get trapped in these local minimums. Okay, so if you're sort of moving towards better and better solutions, if you start here, you may end up here, but the global minimum is over here. Okay. Similarly, if you started here, you might move in this direction and end up here. Okay. So, so this is all kind of abstract. So let me talk about a sort of more specific setting. And we'll return for this um, to, and this is sort of mostly going to be about the material in 12.1. So we'll return to our old friend vertex cover, okay. where our solution set to begin with corresponds to vertex sets that are covers. So any set of vertices that it's, that's a cover is a possible solution. And what typically we have in this local search is a so-called um, neighbor relation. So we say that two solutions, Si and Sj, are neighbors, which we denote this way, if they're close to each other in some sense. And here, close means in terms of structure. And the book suggests a simple way of doing it is that if either Sj is Si plus some single vertex V or Si is Sj plus some single vertex V. Or alternately, you have that these things are neighbors if you can get one or for the other by either adding or deleting a vertex. 
So one way of thinking about it is that if we start with some solution S0, that in general, there'll be options of going to maybe S prime or S double prime or S triple prime, okay, that these are all neighbors of our initial set. Okay? So in particular, you can imagine that actually the way we've described it here, you can add any vertex that's not in the current set and get to a neighbor. Because right? adding a vertex always gets you a new cover. Okay? Um, you also may be able to delete a vertex okay, depending on whether you have extra ones or not. So in terms of the idea of a non-solution, yeah. um, like are, are, you say that S0 is allowed to be a non-solution, but it can well, some SI along so, the way? So the book at least mostly focuses on solutions where we would only have covers. Okay. Okay. But um, and I'll, I'll talk just a minute in a minute about what happens if we want to consider non-solutions as well. Okay. So, um, so since there are a bunch of neighbors, one of the critical issues in local search is how do you choose the next solution? Okay. And one of the sort of classic ways of doing it is what's known as gradient descent. And what this means is you pick the cheapest neighbor. And so, for example, in vertex cover, it would mean pick the neighbor that has the lowest cost. And so if this was the unweighted vertex cover case, the neighbor would just be the one whose size is smallest. In the weighted case, the one where the sum of the weights is smallest. And also, typically in gradient descent, you can only improve. Okay, that is, you're not allowed to pick somebody. You sort of consider yourself to be your own neighbor. So if none of your neighbors are cheaper than you, then that's where the algorithm terminates. Okay. However, if you keep to this, then there's a real danger of being trapped in these local minima. Because it means, for example, in this case, the only way you can lower the cost is by deleting vertices. Adding vertices never improves it. Okay. All right. So it means that um, if you're missing a vertex that should be in the solution, you can never get to that if you have this very restrictive thing. Okay. Now, also, let me comment that one of the things about local search is it can often be effective, but it's actually typically hard to prove much about these local search methods. Okay? People often use them in a relatively ad hoc way, and they often can be successful, All right. but typically it's um, since it does depend a lot on these choices of how you're picking neighbors and the specific neighbor's relation that you choose. 
All right. So I wanted to say a few things. So, so if we restrict to this, and the alternate is to allow, let me say, negative moves, that is, where you can move to a neighbor that's of higher cost. Okay, and I just comment we're posing these always as if they're a minimization problem. There's a, a natural analog if it's a maximization problem. So, so actually, let me, before I, so there are various strategies that allow you to make negative moves. Um, one is to have something where you pick a random neighbor. Okay, so now in the vertex cover case, if you pick a random neighbor, then at each step you're allowed to either delete a vertex if that's legal or add a vertex. Okay, so in this way, if you're missing a vertex that should be in it, okay, um, there are also settings where you actually, at certain points, you run for a while, and if you get stuck, you then just restart, pick a new initial state, okay, and start running from there. Again, going from here, if you think of, can we move back here? Thanks. If you think of this, that you might, in this sort of setting, figure that if initially you started here, then maybe you'd pick one here. Later on, maybe you'd be lucky enough to pick something over here that would let you get to this better state. So as you're going, you always keep track of the best solution you've found to date. Okay. In some other smarter settings, you actually keep track of all the places you've been so that you don't repeat states that have already been tried. Okay. That sometimes has space issues. Right. Okay, so let's, let's actually now move over to here. So now, so the issue of now using non-solutions So in this, what you can do is allow, say, a non-cover C. So C is a set of vertices that potentially doesn't cover all the vertices. Okay. Um, doesn't cover all the edges. And we can say that the cost of C is a function of both its actual cost and how bad it is in terms of being a solution. So it might be something like the actual size of C or the sum of its weights plus the number of uncovered edges multiplied by some penalty factor P. Okay, so what we're saying is we're going to allow sets that don't cover all the edges, but we're going to increase their cost compared to similar sets. Okay? So if you have this, notice that now 
adding a vertex can reduce your cost because it may reduce the number of uncovered edges. So it gives you more flexibility. It lets you sort of move outside the legal set of solutions in order to explore things that are um, sort of partial solutions. All right. And what sometimes is done is where this penalty factor P varies. So as the algorithm runs, P goes up. So initially, you want to explore things that aren't legal. As you've run for a while and want to um, home in on a real solution, then you increase this penalty factor to force your algorithm to shift to real solutions. Um, maybe also comment that what, and the book doesn't really talk about this particularly. Another example that they don't talk about where this comes up is some of you may have seen this kind of famous problem known as the N Queens problem, where you have a chessboard that's N by N, and you want to place N Queens such that no two can attack each other. Okay. So maybe here. And here, well, it's not uh, something like that. Extend it further. So there are local search algorithms that can solve this problem quite efficiently, where their measure of how close you are is not the number of queens, since you've got sort of all n, but how many pairs of queens can attack each other. So the cost equals number of pairs who attack each other. And using that metric and local search methods, you can home in on a legal solution uh, fairly quickly, at least if it's done well. That's another example of sort of starting with non-solutions and moving to things that are solutions. Okay, okay so that's sort of the, the basic scenario. Now, 12.2 talks about a couple of sort of more sophisticated schemes, in particular the Metropolis algorithm <coughs> and simulated annealing. And the idea here is it's a local search method where you have a specific scheme for negative moves. And the sort of genesis of this came from physics, 
where the idea is that sort of in nature, what you have is um, things that are initially in sort of a hot, um, molten or gaseous state where ch a lot of changes can happen. And then as the system cools, it moves towards a sort of stable low energy state. And this is tried to sort of model this in these local search settings. So the basic idea that you're trying to do is very simple. So remember we said that sort of the general thing is that you're at a particular state S and you have a choice as before of various neighbors. Okay. And some of these neighbors are of lower cost, some of higher cost in general. And the question is, how do you choose which one? Okay. And we talked before of two methods. One was choose the cheapest, and the other was pick a random one. Okay. And what this scheme is, and I'm just going to talk about it at a high level. You can look at the book for some of the details, but um, I wouldn't worry about it too much. The idea is to say that the, we're going to pick a random neighbor, but we're going to do it in a non-uniform manner. So we're not going to be equally likely to pick any neighbor. Okay. So in particular, what we're going to do, roughly speaking, is to say that the cheaper our neighbor is, the higher the probability of selection. So we're sort of going to say that if something is an improving move, then it's always going to be a more likely thing to pick than one that makes the cost higher. Okay. And also, the more something is an expensive move, that is, the more it raises the cost, the less likely we are to pick it. Okay. And basically what the book has is a, in these schemes is a specific formula that penalizes the move in a nonlinear way depending on how bad it is versus how good it is. Okay. So is that intuition clear? No, we haven't talked about the. Okay. So the two parts really are one, that we have this. And the second part is analogous to what I talked about here, which is that as the algorithm runs, we favor good, that is, improving moves more. Okay, so this non-uniformity goes up as the algorithm runs. So initially, we're going to do something that's not too far from uniform. Okay, so we're going to sort of say at the beginning, we don't have a very good idea that we're in the right place. So we should make our moves fairly flexibly. We can um, go to something better or something worse. 
But after we've run for a while and we have what we hope is something close to the optimal solution, now we're going to be much more conservative. And we're going to have a strong bias in favor of improving moves. Is uh, is S an option for a move at, for, from S prime? Like, can you move backwards? Ah, uh, yes. Typically, you do allow backward moves in part because they don't want to save the state information because mm -hmm. then you can have space problems. Okay. There, there are variants. I sh I should say that again. You can prove some things about this at least in the long term. But you can't really prove a lot about what's going to happen within any specific range of time. So what happens in these things where you can't prove them is that people develop a lot of different options. So often what you have to do is play with these and you, know, you have some flexibility in terms of how much bias there is and how quickly you change that bias. Okay. Um, and also, of course, just how long you run the algorithm. Okay. So there's nothing really to say if you let it run infinite life or No, in, in the limit, there are things that they can say. Okay. That in some sense, the long-term probability of being in a state is proportional to the cost of the state. Okay. So you're more likely to be in lower cost states than high cost states. But it doesn't say much about the speed of convergence. So, you know, um, you know the uh, physicists and mathematicians often like what happens in the limit. Uh, as computer scientists, we kind of prefer what will happen within the amount of time we're willing to run the algorithm. So, okay. But, but these are used for a variety of of hard problems, things like the traveling salesman problem and various kinds of planning problems. So it, it is a method that has been used with, with reasonable success. Okay. Um, partly because it's a good flexible method, partly perhaps because there have been uh, smart people using it and tweaking the uh, approach until it works well. Okay. Okay. All right, so anyway, I'm, I don't want to I'm not going to spend um, more time on it. But, but this also is, in some sense, a good introduction to the next section, which is using randomness more broadly to design good algorithms. Okay. But yeah, George. So is local search mostly heuristics in that you can't prove a certain That's right. So for the most part, there, there, are, there are some things that people have been able to prove. Um, if you have certain particular conditions on the neighbor relation, for example, where you can sort of estimate how far you are from the optimal solution, then you can actually prove things. But for most of the hard problems, which is where we're most interested in doing it, there isn't a lot you can usually prove about them. So it's, it's closer to a heuristic than the approximation. That's right. It's really more of a heuristic than, than like an approximation algorithm. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Right. okay. So next is um, chapter 13 on randomized algorithms.
And this is mostly what we're going to focus on for the remainder of the class. And so the idea is to be able to use random choices. So you can think of coin flipping or in practice pseudo-random number generators to create algorithms and typically with either one of two types of things. Either one fast expected run times on all inputs. Okay, so this is something to distinguish that we sometimes talk about the expected performance of an algorithm where we're averaging over different inputs. Okay? Here, we don't care what the inputs are in particular. We don't have to make any assumptions about the structure of the inputs, okay? how likely certain ones are. Um, so the random choices all occur in our algorithm, not in our source of inputs. Okay. Uh, we also sometimes get ones that are correct with high probability. And typically in this case, always fast. Okay, so the runtime isn't determined by these random choices, but whether or not we get the right or an optimal answer is. The book doesn't talk about this as explicitly as this. Okay. So let me illustrate the first one in a familiar setting. Okay. So you've all seen quicksort. But let me just very briefly review it just, just to make a particular point. So in quicksort, your input is an unsorted list and some element x1 is chosen as your partition element. And you then convert this in linear time to a slightly sorted array where the things less than x1 precede x1 in the array and the things greater than x1 follow it, and you can then go off and recursively sort these two sublists. Okay. So quicksort is a simple and in practice effective method. And it runs in order n log n time if these partitions are reasonably balanced. Okay, that is, if the two sublists are, at least on average, something around half the list. Okay. All right. Now, Sort of the simplest version of quicksort always takes as the partition element the first element in the list or sublist. So it would take 
the first element here, it would then take the first element of this list and the first element of this list. Okay? And that works well as long as the input list is in a random order initially. Okay? It works very poorly on lists that are already sorted or almost sorted. Okay? So to get around that in our randomized algorithm context, we pick the partition element uniformly at random from the list. So now we have this idea of a random choice. So to start the algorithm, I pick a random position. And I then um, do this step. Okay? And similarly, for each of these lists, I again choose a random element of those. Okay? And if I do this, this has expected theta n log n runtime. And as I said above, on any input. Okay, so now I don't have to make any assumptions about whether the initial input is random or sorted or anything in between. Whatever the initial input is, the algorithm has this expected runtime. Okay. And in addition, it has this runtime with high probability. Okay, so the probability that it's significantly more than n log n. I should say, to, to, to really state this, you have to um, talk about not just the big theta, but a specific constant. And so we can say that for a suitably chosen specific constant in here, the probability it's more than that constant is very low and actually falls off um, something like, say, you can do it as 1 over n squared or something like that. Okay, so as the lists get bigger, it becomes less and less likely. Okay. Okay, so that's probably all familiar. Now, another setting where this is very useful is for parallel and distributed algorithms. We can often use randomization instead of explicit coordination. So we can have a bunch of distributed processes that, rather than having to coordinate their decisions, can make them by random choices. So that creates a setting where the different processes, even though they're sort of running the same program, make different choices. So you avoid contention and hot spots. Right? 
So the book talks about this with a simple but important example in 13.1, which is a problem that's known as contention resolution. So the idea is the following. You have n processes, P1 through Pn. And imagine that we have a shared database. And each of these processes wants to access that database. And we're going to make some particular assumptions about this. First, we're going to assume that time is divided up into slots. So we can think of it as being partitioned into discrete chunks. And also, what's going to happen is the following. If, say, process PI tries to access the database, it succeeds only if no other process PJ also tries in the current slot. Okay, so we need um, only a single process to be trying in a given one. If there's more than one, they create a conflict and everybody gets locked out. And I want to comment that this sort of setting applies not only in this setting, but also in several other common ones. Among them, for example, um, LAN ethernets often have a protocol like this, where you've got this single channel. And if one person tries to transmit on the channel, they succeed. If 2 plus try and transmit, they interfere. And nobody's message is heard. Okay. Similarly, in wireless situations, when you have radio transmissions, okay. If you have two people who are each trying to transmit, so if this one transmits and this one transmits and they're using the same channel and are within interference range, then their signals will create noise and nobody will hear either message. Okay. So this sort of coordination problem is a fairly important one. So obviously, there's a couple ways that we can solve this problem with explicit coordination. Okay. So if these can all contact essential authority, it could give one of them permission to access in the current slot, and everything works well. Okay. Similarly, you can sometimes take time and partition it into n slots and assign each of these time slots to a given 
process. Okay, so process one knows, say, it's eligible to transmit in slot one only, and two has, is eligible to transmit in slot two. Okay? But this can be wasteful if not everybody wants to access it all the time. And also, it requires some coordination to set up this slotted assignment. Okay. So as you might guess from the topic we're in, we're going to use, we're going to use randomization to avoid any explicit coordination. Okay. The only coordination is setting up the protocol to begin with. So the idea is that in a time slot, each process PI um, tries to access with probability P and does not with probability 1 minus p. And let me use slightly different notation than the book. So let me let SIT represent that PI succeeds in accessing the thing in slot So from the way we've set this up, this works if P sub i um, is tries. So that means that it does that with probability P. Okay. So the probability that SIT is true, okay, that, that this actually happens, is equal to P, the probability that process I um, does its random experiment and says, yes, I should try. And you can imagine that it's, that process I is flipping a coin and with probability P it gets heads and says, I'll try. With probability 1 minus P it gets tails. Okay. And what about the rest of the processes? Yeah. Yeah. So they all get tails, so that's probability 1 minus p to the n minus 1. Okay. Now, the book does some calculus to show that the best p is 1 over n to maximize this quantity. And to analyze this for that case, there's a key fact which is given in um, 13.1, which is the following. That a quarter is equal to or less than 1 minus 1 over n to the n is equal to or less than 1 over E. So if you take this, this is for at least um, N 
equal to or greater than 2. Okay, so notice that when n is 2, this is a half raised to the 2 is a quarter. And as n gets bigger, this gets bigger, and in the limit, it goes to 1 over e. And so it goes to 1 over e. Well, a related thing, if we take 1 minus 1 over n to the n minus 1, that's what we're going to have here, so for our special case. And this is, you can see at n equals 2, is a half. It's a half to the 1. And what happens here, as n gets larger, it gets smaller and also goes to 1 over e. So in the limit, it doesn't matter whether it's raised to the n or the n minus 1. But for small values of n, it does. Okay. So roughly speaking, we can approximate this. Okay, so for this particular case, this becomes 1 over n times 1 minus 1 over n to the n minus 1. And using this, this is approximately 1 over n times e. So this is the probability that a particular um, process transmits in the given slot. So sort of in terms of throughput, what we're, one of the things we're interested in is what's the probability that anyone transmits? And so if we look at instead the probability that someone transmits. I'm sorry, not transmits, but succeeds. In slot T, a given slot T, well, it's not too hard to argue that that's just the summation I equals 1 to n SIT, which is approximately n times 1 over ne, or approximately 1 over e. Okay. And maybe just to comment, the reason we can just sum up these probabilities is because if you think about the probability space, these events don't overlap. And that is, if process 1 transmits, then process 2 doesn't. So there's no situations where more than one. So you can sort of think of that there's a certain probability where nobody transmits, and then 1, 2, they should all be equal size up through n. Okay, so it's a partition of the probability space, and therefore just adding up these n slices gets us this.
So this says that at least we're not too bad, that better than a third of the time we expect that somebody will transmit. So other things that we're interested in is how long does a particular process have to wait before it gets access? And similarly, if everybody wants to access it, how long does it take before everyone gets a chance to transmit? Okay? And, um, So the expected number of slots for PI to wait is about n times e. So just 1 over the probability of succeeding. So if you keep trying in successive slots, this is the expected waiting time. And all um, the processes transmit with probability equal to or greater than 1 minus 1 over n in 2 times the ceiling of En natural log of n um, slots. Okay, so if we take this many with fairly high probability, okay, the probability maybe more easily that somebody doesn't succeed is at most 1 over n if you allow this many slots. All right, so the book does the, the actual algebra for, for this stuff. I think it's not a good exercise to go through uh, to copy the formulas in the book to the blackboard to your notes. But, so um, and it's fairly straightforward. Okay. So let me comment that this setting is somewhat simplified in that it assumes that you know n to set this probability p. You know, remember we're talking about a distributed setting where maybe new processes arrive, maybe processes depart, okay. or maybe there are periods where lots of people want to access the database and others where not so many. So, I mean, if you had 100 processes, and only five of them really wanted to access it in this time period, it would be quite inefficient to use this protocol. Okay? So, in fact, the better ones actually estimate n. And to do this, you assume that each process when it tries to access the database, gets some feedback. 
And let me comment, this is not in the book. They don't talk about this. Okay. So if PI, um, well, actually, um, PI you can think of here's either no attempt, okay, that is, you can imagine that it's able to see what's going on in the access channel. So this means um, um, well, this means nobody is trying, or um, um, or one succeeds. It, it sees that there's been exactly one or um, two plus try. So this happens, by the way, particularly if you think of the radio type or Ethernet settings, where you're listening to the channel, and either you hear that a message got through, somebody succeeded, you hear nothing, there was no attempt, or you hear static or more people tried. Okay. And roughly speaking, this means that your estimate is about right. This suggests your estimate is too high. And this suggests your estimate is too low. So the adaptive protocols at each step modify the estimate based on this. Okay, so you could imagine that in this case, we say n is too low, so maybe n is set to n over 2. In this case, it's too high, n is set to, I'm sorry, it's too low, and say n is set to 2n. Okay, and by using this type of adaptive protocol, you can actually do pretty well. You can actually get results close to these where you know the true n, at least assuming the number of um, people attempting stays at least somewhat stable for a period of time. Okay, if the, obviously, if the number of people trying varies greatly from slot to slot, it's going to be almost impossible to estimate it. And these sorts of schemes are used in real settings where you aren't given in. Okay, so I want to talk about one other application today, and that's a problem we've seen, and we'll look at a different solution. So this is a problem discussed in 13.2 of the global min cut. Okay. And this is something we saw before, though this is in a slightly different context. So the input is an undirected, unweighted, 
graph G. And there's no source and sink, but there's just the idea that we say that a cut AB is just a partition of V where A and B are each not empty. So it's our usual thing. We have a set of vertices A, B on the other, and the size of the cut is just equal to the number of crossing edges. however many edges connect things on two different sides. Okay. So you know, we, we saw this, in fact, in a more complicated context. And we can solve this with n minus 1 flows or, in fact, with <coughs> fancier methods. Okay. Or fancier methods that are even faster. Okay. But what we'll do here is to talk about a randomized algorithm. And the randomized algorithm that I'm going to present is a simplified version of the ones that are really competitive for solving this problem. But it illustrates some of the kinds of techniques that you can use in randomized algorithms. And it also shows that it's possible to compute cuts without doing flow. And so we've sort of tied flows and cuts very closely together, but they don't always have to be. Okay. So the idea is that we're going to introduce two things. One is when we're going to allow parallel edges in at least our intermediate graphs. We could also be in our initial graph as well. Okay. So by parallel edges, we just mean that for x and y, we allow possibly multiple edges between them. Okay. And for example, in terms of the size of the cut, if x were in A and y were in B, this would contribute three edges to the size of the cut. Okay. And what we're going to use as our main step is a contract operation. So the idea is that we contract an edge. And the result of that is to kind of collapse this edge into the endpoints into a single vertex. And let me sort of illustrate it by 
an example on a small graph. This is one that's in the text also. So suppose I have the following simple graph or piece of a graph and I'm going to contract AB. Okay, so this edge gets contracted. So the result of that is to create a new graph with a new vertex that sort of represents A and B collectively. And what's going to happen is that D had an edge to A, so it'll have an edge to this joint vertex, and C had an edge to each of A and B. So it's going to actually now have two edges to this. That's how we're going to get the parallel edges to represent that it has edges to each of them. Okay. And what you can think of is contracting an edge is making a decision that A and B are going to be on the same side of the cut in our solution. Because what I'm going to look at are cuts in this graph. Okay, so for example, the cut um, DAB on one side and C on the other, okay, would, I'm sorry, and there's still an edge connecting D and C, okay, would have C here, D in this joint one AB here, and we'd get two edges here and this edge here, so the size of this cut is three. So that's sort of intuitively what it's doing. Okay. And also what's going to happen is that as our algorithm is runs, we're going to keep track of for each vertex, we're going to have, so vertex now means things like AB, we're going to have a set for each vertex V, we're going to have a set S of V which is the vertices associated with V. Okay. So initially, the only thing associated with a vertex is itself. As you do a contraction, you take a union of the two sets as the set associated with the combined vertex. So basically, if you do contract on the edge AB, the result of that is S of this new vertex AB is equal to S of A union S of B. Okay, so you get all of those. Now, using the contract operation, we have really a very simple min-cut algorithm. 
well, I should say, a very simple cut algorithm, which might find the minimum. And the algorithm, this is stated slightly differently than the book. So well, the number of vertices is greater than 2. Um, choose a random edge E equals UV. Our graph G is updated to contract of the current graph G and the edge UV. Okay, so do the contraction operation as we described. And that's the whole main loop. And then return as the cut S of V1 and S of V2, where I'll just comment that V1 and V2 are the remaining super vertices in G. So Maybe just going back to here, if this was our original graph, then what would happen is that we did this contraction. We now have three vertices. We would then contract one of these four edges. And notice that we're twice as likely to contract these two as the others, since we're choosing uniformly from this, 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 and this. Okay, so in a sense, we've sort of weighted the vertex pairs by how many edges we connect that connect them. Okay. So if we connected these two, we would end up with a cut of A, B, and C, and D. Okay. If we contracted these two, we would end up with a cut of A, B on one side and D, C on the other. So notice that as we run, that each iteration reduces the number of vertices by 1. Okay. So this runs for exactly n minus 1 iterations. And you can actually implement with a bit of care in time proportional to the size of the graph. Right. So we got one of the things we wanted, a simple and fast algorithm. And the downside is that it's not very likely to work. Okay. We could get lucky and find the minimum cut, but there's no guarantee that this is the minimum cut. Okay. So you may recall that I 
said at the beginning that one version of a randomized algorithm is one that's always fast, but maybe doesn't give you the right answer. So this is a version of that. Okay. And in fact, if you run it just once, what they show in the book is that um, the probability you find the minimum cut, they say, is equal to or greater than 1 over n squared. So, not so great. So, the possible solution is to run it many times and take the best cut found. Okay. And in this case, the um, number many translates to something like n squared to balance the, the failure probability. Okay. And if you do this, then you have a reasonable chance of finding the minimum cut. Okay. So let me talk just a little bit about this bound. I don't want to go through all the algebra, but I want to give you a little bit of the intuition for how this is shown. And that will also let me talk about something the book doesn't really talk about, which is um, what the better algorithms that build on this do. So, so the idea of this is that let's consider consider a min cut AB. Okay, so suppose that this is one of the global minimum cuts. And let's suppose that across this cut is a set of edges F and the number of edges in F is K. Okay. So what you can kind of think about intuitively is that the algorithm screws up if we ever pick one of these edges to contract. Because okay. if we pick one of these edges to contract, then we collapse things that are supposed to be on two sides of the cut. Okay? So the algorithm fails to find a b if we pick e in f to contract. So what they argue is that the simple thing which I'll talk about is that consider the first edge. Well, when I'm picking the first edge to contract, there are k bad choices, okay. k bad choices out of 
the number of edges in the graph. And what the book argues is that the number of edges has to actually be a lot bigger than k. And the argument they use is that one of the types of cuts you can have is a single vertex i in A and everything else in B. Okay. So if you consider this cut, the size of this cut is the degree of i. So if the minimum cut is of size k, that tells us that all vertex degrees are equal to or greater than k. Okay, so if we consider every vertex in the graph, there are at least k edges touching it. Okay. So there are n vertices. So that means that the size of E is equal to or greater than n times k. Each of the n vertices has k edges touching it. But we have to divide by 2 because an edge contributes to the degree of both vertices. Okay. All right. So, so we said that there are k bad choices out of E. So the probability that the here do this up here probability the first pick is bad is equal to or less than well is actually equal to equal to or less than k over e which is equal to or less than k over from here n times k over 2, which the k's cancel, so we get 2 over n. So our first choice wasn't very likely to fail. Probability at most. Um, 2 over n. And notice that this is a little bit pessimistic. The reason these equal to or less than come in is that some vertices may have more than k is their degree. In fact, in general, many of them will. So this estimate on E is probably low. And this assumes there's only one minimum cut. And if there are several minimum cuts, then even if I make a bad choice and kill one of them, I might find one of the others. Right. Now, the problem is, is that as the algorithm runs, there are fewer vertices. And the chances of killing off the cut go up. Okay, notice that if all of our choices had this low a probability, then our chance of succeeding would be much higher. Okay. But as we get down to um, fewer, vertice, fewer super vertices, we're more likely to fail. And what the book does is to do a product of the probability of failing at each step doing something 
like this in these contracted graphs, and that gets us the 1 over n squared. Okay. So, so they, have, they have all the algebra for that, but I just wanted to have the idea. Okay. But that also gives a little bit of the intuition of how the better algorithms work. Okay. So the intuition is that early decisions are likely to be good. Late decisions are dangerous. Okay. But late decisions are on smaller graphs. So what you can imagine doing is rather than running the whole algorithm n squared times, okay, run the contract algorithm for a while until you get a graph that's smaller and you're starting to reach a point where your chance of error is greater. And now try multiple choices at that point okay, where it doesn't have to be done as much. Okay. So by sort of focusing your additional choices on later smaller graphs, then you can improve this. So there's sort of a recursive algorithm that does this on um, these progressively smaller graphs. The, the exact details are actually not too bad, but um, a little bit beyond what we're going to have time to cover, and it's also not done in the text. Okay, but that, that's just sort of the intuition behind what it does. Okay. So, all right, then I think we're going to break for now, and tomorrow we'll continue on a couple more examples of randomized algorithms, and then you'll have a, a while off until a week from Tuesday. Okay. The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.